0: The American Thoracic Society. We help the world
1: breathe.
2: This is Jacob Yasser Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim, of the section of pulmonary critical care medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim.
0: Thanks, Yasha. In today's podcast, I'm joined by cheng Hak Toh and Art Slutsky to discuss an article by Dr. Toh's group entitled, Circulating Histones are Mediators of Trauma-Associated Lung Injury, published in the January 15, 2013 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Toe is Professor of Clinical Infection, Microbiology, and Immunology at the Institute of Infection and Global Health at the University of Liverpool. Dr. Slutsky is Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto, Vice President of Research Saint Michael's Hospital, scientist in the Keenan Research Centre in the Li Ka Shing Knowledge Institute of Saint Michael's Hospital, and the division director of the interdepartmental division of Critical Care Medicine, University of Toronto. Thank you both for joining me today, Dr. Sludsky. Dr. Tow's study is about histones and the acute respiratory distress syndrome. I would like to start with some background. Could you please tell our listeners about ARDS? What is it and what are some of the disease processes that commonly cause it?
1: ARDS is a, a syndrome that was uh, first described by Ashbaugh colleagues in uh, 1967. It's characterized pathologically by diffuse alveolar damage, increased alveolar capillary permeability, and inflammation and coagulopathy. What happens is there's damage to the epithelium, there's injury, denudation, injury to type two cells, that leads to loss of epithelial integrity. This then leads to impairments of epithelial fluid transport, causing edema, that blood, the uh, alveoli. That then affects surfactants, and in the long term there can also be fibrosis. It's also an inflammatory disease. I mean, there's some debate about whether neutrophils play a role. I think the evidence is it probably does play a role. There's certainly inflammation and pro-inflammatory factors, including cytokines. And over the last few years, there's been an increased understanding that one of the therapies, mechanical ventilation, can actually lead to damage itself and some of that damage can be inflammatory in nature. It's a syndrome that is defined clinically by hypoxemia, bilateral pulmonary infiltrates that's not caused by left ventricular failure. The fact that it's a syndrome is actually a bit of a problem. We may come to this a little bit later. There's been a recent new revamping of the definition just published last year, but quite frankly the definition is still not great. The new definition got rid of the term acute lung injury. It then divided ARDS into mild, moderate or severe based on oxygenation criteria and added the fact that one needed PEEP in terms of the oxygenation criteria. What's really missing is something like a troponin-like biomarker, some sort of test that can give us a more definitive diagnosis, that would be extremely helpful. ARDS is also caused by or related to predisposing insults, such as sepsis, aspiration, and severe trauma. It's been estimated that there's about 200,000 cases per year in the U.S. The mortality rate depends on the underlying disease processes, but can vary anywhere from 30 to 50 to 55 percent. And it's estimated there are about 75,000 deaths in the U.S. every year in patients with ARDS. And there are probably about 3.6 million hospital days that are taken up by patients uh, with ARDS.
0: Thank you for that description, Dr. Slutsky. You alluded to the high mortality of ARDS. Have there been any treatments that have been shown to reduce the mortality?
1: Despite the fact that the syndrome was described over 45 years ago and despite sort of intense widespread investigation, We don't have any real proven pharmacological therapies that attack the underlying biological processes that have been shown to decrease mortality. Some studies have shown that early corticosteroid use or or late use may have some benefit. Other adjunctive approaches have been shown to be beneficial, but these are general in nature, restrictive fluid strategies, protocolized approach to weaning, you know, more careful sedation management, all of those have been shown to be useful. That's not to say we haven't made any progress. You know, ironically, the greatest progress has been made by strategies that aim to minimize e consequences of the therapies we use. Essentially, all patients with ARDS need to be ventilated to take care of their hypoxemia and to decrease the work of breathing. So I think the major advance over the past few years has been the use of lung protective ventilatory strategies. There was a key publication in 2000 by the ARDS Network investigators that demonstrated that a strategy using small tidal volumes, 6 ml per kilo predictive body weight versus 12 ml per kilo, decreased mortality by an absolute 9%. That was a huge decrease in mortality. A meta-analysis published a few years ago demonstrated that higher levels of PEEP were useful in patients with more severe hypoxemia, That is, patients who had a PF ratio less than about 150. Uh, There's an interesting study a couple of years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine that demonstrated the use of paralytic agents for the first 48 hours after the diagnosis of ARDS decreased mortality. I personally would like to see this study replicated, but it clearly was quite interesting, and probably the mechanism is related to decreased ventilator-induced lung injury. There was also a meta-analysis that demonstrated in patients with worse hypoxemia, that's PF less than about 100, that there was a decrease in mortality when patients were put into the prone position. There was also a a recent study presented at the European Society for Intensive Care Medicine that is unpublished as of today that confirmed these findings, and, in fact, the results were pretty dramatic. There was a 16% absolute reduction in mortality in patients placed prone in those patients who had PF less than 150. There's also evidence that lung protective ventilation may also prevent the development of ARDS in patients who are ventilated but don't have ARDS at the time that they are uh, being ventilated. So all in all, it's ironic that, you know, the real advances have been in decreasing the added mortality that we add as physicians as we try to save lives of our patients who would have died otherwise. So the lack of effective therapies aimed at, the underlying biology, which is much better understood today than it was 45 years ago, I think is, is why the current study by Abram and colleagues that we're talking about is of interest.
0: Okay, so let's get to uh, the, uh, the current study. Dr. Toh, some listeners to this podcast may not be familiar with histones. Could you please describe histones for us and tell us why you decided to study them in
1: ARDS?
2: Histones are proteins. Uh, normally found in cell nuclei where they help package and order DNA into structural units. And they do this by acting as scaffolds or spools around which DNA winds onto. But they also play an increasingly recognized role in gene regulation, in modulating DNA repair, and in mitosis. Uh, however, when histones are outside its normal environment and outside the nucleus, when it's released into the circulation in large numbers, in individual forms, H1, H2, H3, and 4, or heterodimeric forms, they can be extremely toxic. And this was described in 2009 in a Nature Medicine publication by Chuck Esman's group from Oklahoma, where they used a mouse model of sepsis to demonstrate this toxicity of extracellular histones. And I think the important findings really led a lot of us to consider how these findings could translate into sort of clinical value. And we asked the question ourselves, uh, which human disease model was possibly the best one to examine for this effect of extracellular or circulating histones? And certainly one of the things that came to our mind is perception that there still is a gray area in the etiology of the enhanced inflammatory state and neutrophil activation underlying that secondary lung injury or damage following trauma. So our thesis is that the toxicity of circulating histones released following acute traumatic cell damage provides that missing or that pivotal link in understanding.
0: Dr. Toh, you studied blood samples from patients in a prospective cohort study, as well as doing a, a series of other experiments I'll ask you to talk about later. Uh, but can you tell us about the patients that you, uh, you had these, uh, the availability of blood from?
2: The clinical cohort was adult trauma patients, and these recruited patients were less than two hours following their acute injury who had not yet had greater than two liters of fluid. And we enrolled 250 patients, and they were studied with a further subgroup of 52 who were characterized to have severe non-thoracic blunt trauma so that we could focus upon the question of whether circulating histones could mediate distant organ damage in causing respiratory and multi-organ failure. As to the uh, in vivo experiments using mice, we ran both an exogenous histone injection model and an endogenous histone release model where trauma was induced onto these experimental animals.
0: So, Dr. Toh, let's talk about those trauma patients you measured circulating histones, but you also measured markers that were representative of endothelial damage as well as activation of coagulation. Can you tell me uh, what you found?
2: We found significant increases in uh, soluble thrombomodulin, which is a well-known marker of endothelial damage, as well as thrombin antithrombin complexes of TATS which are markers of coagulation activation in our patients with trauma. Now, importantly, both these uh, soluble thrombomolin and TAP markers correlated significantly with circulating histone levels in these patients. And we determined the total histone levels through initial measurements of the histone H3 by Western blotting, using a human recombinant H3 protein as a standard, and based on the ratio of H3 to the known total molecular mass of histones, we were able to calculate the total histone concentration in these clinical samples. So the sampling was uh, done, as we said, on presentation, but it were also repeated at uh, 24 hours and uh, 72 hours.
0: So I'd ask you a couple of things as a follow-up. First of all, you mentioned the serial time points you checked. Were you able to determine how long it took for histones to clear from the circulation? And then did circulating histone levels predict the development of ARDS? And I wonder, in patients who developed ARDS, did you follow those histone levels over a period of time, and were those predictive of any outcomes? We
2: uh, were able to show that histone levels were usually very high at presentation, and certainly they stayed high at 24 hours and started to slightly fall by 72 hours. Certainly our findings were that the concentration of histones within that sample was uh, quite informative. In those patients who had circulating histone levels that were above 50 micrograms per mil, we found that approximately 75% of them developed respiratory failure. And we can contrast this with uh, those patients whose levels were below that toxicity threshold, whereby only about 20% of them went on to have had respiratory complications. Equally, we found that there was a strong and significant correlation between circulating histone levels on admission to the osirposcopes and this is indicative of the uh, development of multi-organ failure. And so what we were able to say from this study is that there is a strong association between the levels of histones in the circulation in trauma patients and the development of ARDS. But we did not set out to examine the predictive value, but I would point to a recent paper by Kutchev from the San Francisco Surgical Group who examined acute trauma patients as well and showed that when they measured the levels of histones from admission up to six hours, that this was actually quite important and formed a multivariate predictor of mortality.
0: Fair enough, Dr. Tosa. The next logical question is whether histones are markers or rather, mediators of ARDS. And you conducted a series of in vitro and in vivo experiments to explore this question. Could you please describe these experiments for us?
2: Certainly, in my think the evidence is there very strong to support the thesis that circulating histones are mediators uh, rather than just uh, bystander markers in the process. Certainly, in vitro, we were able... To demonstrate that incubation of histones in our endothelial cell cultures led to cell damage and cell death. In vivo, we demonstrated this in our two experimental models, i.e. that of the exogenous histone infusion and that of the endogenous histone release after trauma, where we included as as a group the uh, addition of anti-histone antibodies, and addition of these antibodies to block the histone effect, significantly reduce a) the level of circulating biomarkers of uh, soluble thrombomodulin and thrombin-antithrombin, b) the pathological features of thrombi, hemorrhage, and edema, thirdly the outcome, and certainly. The antihistone antibodies uh, rescued these uh, mice from lethality in both the histone infusion model and in the trauma model. So we would speculate that in extrapolating these findings, that this would also hold true for humans, but certainly this needs to be verified, especially when clinical interventions that target or neutralize histone toxicity and be troll and analyze.
0: Dr. Slutsky, I'd ask if you had any uh, comment about this series of experiments Dr. Toh just described.
1: The major comment I would have is something that Dr. Toh mentioned already, and, and that is that we've had many examples of approaches, of mechanisms that seem to work in animal studies but don't seem to work in humans. And I think, the, you know, the big question is how critical are these molecules in humans. And I think we're going to have to get at that by blocking studies and actually doing clinical trials to assess the efficacy of these uh, interventions. It's very exciting, but that's a big link. The link to the human studies is always the most difficult in many of these therapies. If you look back over the past few decades, there have been, I don't know, 10 or 15 trials addressing various molecules, various approaches seem to work in animals, but don't seem to work in humans.
0: So I do think broadly that's the big question, I and mean, I guess why don't we explore that at this point, point? You know, and I think I would lean on your unique perspective, Dr. Slutsky, about this. What do you think are Some of the lessons we can learn from, as you said, multiple trials where a potential mediator was identified, animal experiments show blocking that mediator would improve an outcome in sepsis or ARDS, and then the human trials show a lack of benefit. And I think at this point, it would be very important to see what we can learn from that experience going forward when we see a potentially promising mediator like histone.
1: Um, as I mentioned, there, there are many drugs that have been tried for ARDS, anti-inflammatory drugs, surfactant, uh, salbutamol, statins, ketoconazole, lysophilin. All of them seem to work in animals, did work in animals, but in humans there's no decrease in mortality. So, you know, the million-dollar, the billion-dollar question or the multiple-billion-dollar question is why. And one way to think about this might be to say there's, there's really two classes of reasons the first class might be the drug simply is not effective for the, the disease process. That is, we really don't understand ARDS sufficiently well based on the animal studies. just doesn't work. The second class of reason might be that the drug really is effective, but clinical trials are negative because of the difficulties in doing clinical trials. Maybe I'll try to dissect it out based on that sort of schema. So if we think about whether the uh, drugs are effective for disease processes, We always start with, you know, sort of in vitro and in vivo animal studies. And, you know, wonderful to do animal studies. I'm involved in a number of animal studies. Those are many, many, many other people. But they're certainly not perfect. First of all, they're usually very simplistic. They focus on a single factor, a single intervention. They're pretty clean. Well, if you think about the clinical setting, it's usually not so clean. Now, interestingly, uh, in trauma, if you think about trauma as the intervention, That's actually a relatively clean intervention. It's often in young people who don't have comorbid diseases, may not have other underlying diseases, so that may be actually a reasonable model. Secondly, if we think about animal models, if you think about the biologic, genetic, immunological homogeneity in the animal models, a lot different than in humans, and the immunological system of mice and rats are substantially different from humans. Third, when we think about animal models, we often start with animals that are quite healthy at the beginning. That's different than many patients, for example, with sepsis or pneumonia who develop ARDS or many of the other kinds of factors that predispose to ARDS. In animal models, the the timing and magnitude of the inciting events are very tightly regulated. You know exactly when you're giving it. You can time it from time zero. Rare to have that in humans. And I think uh, a really important point in animal models, they're often very short-term models. So in the laboratory, they're quite often 2, 4, 6, 8, 12 hours would be long. There are longer models. Our patients, however, are in the ICU for days, weeks, and often months. So this can lead to sort of incorrect targets, and those are incorrect targets would, of course, if there's a god who says, you know, I know what the right therapy is, that these will be the wrong therapies. So the second class of reason is we have the correct targets, but there's issues with examining them in clinical trials. So one thing that's important is uh, actually something I mentioned earlier, and that's the fact that ARDS is a syndrome, just like sepsis is a syndrome. And there's problems with syndromic definitions. I'm sure many trials, many patients we take care of, even though clinically they have what is defined as ARDS, they have hypoxemia, they have bilateral pulmonary infiltrates, You can't rule out cardiogenic factors causing this problem. They probably don't have diffuse alveolar damage. They don't have pathologically what we think of as ARDS. And from a biologic standpoint, if you have a target that's biologically based, but you're not treating the disease you think you're treating, of course you're going to get a negative result. So I think that's an important factor. And this may be the reason why the only thing that's really been shown to be effective is something to do with ventilation something to do with mechanical factors which may be easier to model in animals and compare to humans because those mechanical factors may be more similar. The other issue is in the human case and clinical trials we have complex diseases, complex therapies, there's comorbidities, there's lots of other reasons patients could die not related to their ARDS. So even if you treat the ARDS, you're doing right things, patients may die of something else. But in the clinical trial, that comes out as a a failure. Many trials don't really ensure that the therapy is hitting the target. What do I mean by that? Well, think about some of the surfactant trials that were done early on. Surfactant was given at the airway opening. Likely sufficient surfactant didn't reach the alveoli. Well, if that doesn't happen, it's going to be difficult to, to have an impact, even if it's the right therapy. With various other drugs, that's also the case. It would be nice to make sure that you have a target, that you impact that target, and you have some impact that you can measure. And I guess finally, and there's many other reasons, but when one looks at ARDS, because it has a high mortality, it makes a lot of sense to look at mortality as an endpoint in any clinical study. The problem is you need a large number of patients. So if you're looking at a, you know, a 30% mortality going down to 24%, and I'm just making this up, the numbers up at the moment, but you might need 1,000 patients. That's not unusual. And as we get better and better, you're going to need even more patients. So that's difficult for a disease that's not rare, but certainly not common. So what can we do about all this? Well, you know, I I clearly don't have sort of the magic bullet. But one thing I think we should be thinking about is often use clinically relevant animal models. So, for thinking about ARDS, some of the models that have been used in the past are surfactant depletion. That's a pretty good model for infant respiratory distress syndrome, but probably wouldn't be the best or if that's the only model one uses for looking at ARDS in therapy. Use of endotoxin is a very clean model in animals. Again, it's useful mechanistically, but you wouldn't want to base therapies based on only LPS models. So there are models that are useful and clinically relevant. Trauma models, similar to the ones in this study. I think if you look at uh, acid aspiration models, I think are quite relevant, secret ligation perforation models. So those, I think you have to have a relevant animal model. Ideally, you'd like to test multiple models and give the drug at clinically relevant times. In this particular study, as far as I remember, the antibody was given about the time of the trauma. So before pursuing this further in humans, you probably want to do studies where you look at giving the antibody or whatever therapy a couple hours, four hours, five hours, six hours, some, some clinically relevant time after the induction of the injury. If we now move to the humans, boy, it would be really great if we could get an improvement in the definitions. I said that there's a, sort of a new definition, the Berlin definition, but it's nowhere near where we would want it to be. As I said earlier, we'd love to have a troponin for acute lung injury, for ARDS, that would have, I think, a big impact in our increasing our understanding of the disease process, but also in terms of the clinical trials. We have to make sure in humans we get the right dose, do the right dose response, and as far as possible, try to look at homogeneous patient populations. And again, when we think about trauma, that's a reasonably homogeneous patient population, as opposed to all comers in ARDS. And when you look at heterogeneous patient populations, you have the added difficulty of the mortality rate for ARDS for trauma, substantially different than the mortality rate from ARDS with uh, sepsis as a predisposing factor. So that's just some of the thoughts on, on some of the issues. The bottom line is, do we have the right drug, and if we have the right drug, are we testing it the right way? And unfortunately, we don't know whether it's A or B. We don't know whether the failures are because we don't have the right drug or we just have been unlucky or done the wrong studies in humans.
0: So clearly it sounds easy to find the uh, magic bullet for uh, decreasing ARDS mortality. Uh, thank you for that thoughtful discussion of the problems we face, Dr. Slusky. I'd like to ask you, Dr. Toll, about sepsis. Dr. Slutsky mentioned that, you know, that patients with trauma are among our cleanest patient populations who develop ARDS, but septic shock and ARDS are among the most lethal and most studied inflammatory conditions that we as critical care clinicians face, and they are linked in that sepsis is among the most common causes of ARDS. I know you alluded to sepsis and histones in your paper, and there was a Nature Medicine paper a few years back by Zhu and colleagues that suggested that extracellular histones are mediators of death in sepsis. So I was wondering what you have studied in regards to histones in ARDS caused by sepsis and if you have future plans to study that patient population.
2: What we do show in this paper is that we take serum samples from patients with severe sepsis, and incubate them with endothelial cells, the endothelial cells will die in culture. And we can block this effect by including an antihistone antibody within the setting. So it kind of tells us that it is histones within the serum of these patients with severe sepsis that is causing this toxicity. However, we did not perform a systematic study of any association between circulating histones to sepsis-induced ARDS. In part, some of that territory was, uh, was covered by the paper that you alluded to by Sue, and also a kind of um, perhaps intellectual guess that maybe in sepsis, histones play a, perhaps a relatively less dominant role than in trauma simply because bacteria or the pathogen, an LPS, for example, can induce more inflammatory pathways, including that of TLR4, which I think is a very strong and potent signaling route towards uh, white cell activation. But bacteria or microbes are unlikely to be players that have significance in the immediate few hours following trauma. And My speculation would be the uh, histone's role, certainly in kind of post-trauma setting, in triggering the cytokine surge through the mechanism that we allude to in the paper, which is that the circulating histones will uh, induce the release from white cells of pre-synthesized IL-6, for example. So this acute histone-induced effect, which leads on to the inflammatory response, I think is cleaner and probably more pivotal in the uh, trauma setting. So in some ways... Some of this description falls back on uh, what Dr. Slutsky has mentioned, is that sometimes in sepsis it really is a complex picture, whereas perhaps certainly in early trauma we can dissect up which players are potentially the primary ones and which players may not be as relevant as others, and my impression is that in sepsis there will be a role, but probably a less significant role for circulating histones. Dr. To, to
0: follow up on another comment that Dr. Slutsky made, he was mentioning I think it would be important in a model to study if antihistone therapy was beneficial in ARDS after the onset of ARDS rather than, you know, simultaneous with induction of ARDS. Have you studied that or do you have plans to study that?
2: not yet studied that, and I think Dr. Slutsky's point is again uh, well taken, that in the clinical setting, any intervention targeting histones wouldn't be as we model in in our animal system, but would be at least an hour or so afterwards. But once ARDS is established, my guess is that the process will then not be reversible by antihistone therapy. But I could be proven wrong. I think it will probably help stop the propagation of damage, whether directly or indirectly contributed to by the circulating histones. We have not yet undertaken those kind of studies, but certainly they would be very valuable in taking forward this whole story from a translational viewpoint.
0: Dr. Slutsky, you've enumerated very nicely so many of the challenges that researchers face in trying to take a mediator like histone from bench to bedside. And I would like to ask your opinion more specifically about histones. So as we you know, are early in our study of histones in, in ARDS, what do you think are some of the gaps in this evidence base regarding histones that requires further study?
1: I think that it would be useful in the animal studies to do intervention studies when the antihistone therapy is given sometime after the inciting event, whether it be, and I think probably a time course, and if you give it 30 seconds after, it's gonna be effective. It's gonna be effective if it's given an hour, two hours, four hours, eight hours. I think those studies would be very useful. If it turns out that it's only useful when given within 15 minutes of the intervention, that makes it much, much less likely that it's going to be useful in humans. So I think that would be one of the first studies to do. I think the next question, and actually maybe this would be a question for Dr. Toh, is this antibody, has it ever been used in humans? So there have been studies looking at safety of this uh, antibody or some other therapy. And it would be nice to start thinking about doing some studies in humans, assuming the animal studies, one can get a better idea of the timing, get a better idea of the dose required, but then ultimately it's always going to come down to what happens in humans. So I wonder if Dr. Toh could talk a little bit about this antibody and whether there are other antibodies or whether there are other approaches that uh, he has that can be used to try and abrogate the uh, impact of histones. In terms of the antibody that was used in the study, it was a mouse uh,
2: antihistone antibody, and certainly one of the uh, things that we intend to do is to humanize the antibody and then be able to discuss the relevance of future studies for humans.
0: Any final thoughts, Dr. To?
2: I think the only thing that we should be trying to push forward with, if we believe that there is a translational element to this story is to be able to measure circulating histone levels in real time. Currently, it's a little bit labor-intensive and time-consuming and just cannot keep a pace with the clinical setting. So proper assays that can serve the clinicians is another angle that, uh, that needs to be addressed in tandem.
0: Thank you both for joining me today. We look forward to seeing whether histones are indeed mediators of trauma-induced ARDS, if anti-histone therapy is beneficial in these patients, and if histones are mediators in other causes of ARDS. With that, we'll end today's podcast. You can find the article, Circulating Histones Are Mediators of Trauma-Associated Lung Injury, as well as the accompanying editorial in the January 15, 2013 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. A complete archive of the ATS article discussion podcast can be found at thoracic.org or by searching in iTunes for American Thoracic Society
2: article discussions. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Thoracic Society.